Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Eric Lindblade, and tonight we are coming to you from the Gettysburg Heritage Center on Steinware Avenue here in historic Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. As always, I am joined by my co-host, Licensed Battlefield Guide, Jim Hessler. And Jim, what's tonight's topic? Well, Eric, tonight we're going to take a more personal approach to things. Some listeners like to just focus on specific battle actions. Other people are into terrain or a core or a specific command. But, you know, I always say that history is about the people, biographies, people interacting with people. And what we're going to do tonight is what Eric and I both think should be kind of a fun little episode. We're going to examine the relationship between two icons of the Confederacy and the Army of Northern Virginia. We're talking about Confederate generals Robert E. Lee and George Pickett. Now, although they served in the same army for much of the war, their fates really intersected and their legends became defined on the afternoon of July 3rd at Gettysburg. In fact, you could argue that July 3rd is perhaps Lee's greatest failure and ironically Pickett's most memorable hour. But rumors of a feud between these two legends have persisted for years, going so far as General Pickett allegedly exclaiming that that old man had my division massacred at Gettysburg. Some historians have even gone so far as to term it Lee versus Pickett. I don't know if I'd go that far, but those are the kinds of things we're going to talk about today. So we're going to examine the stormy Lee-Pickett relationship before Gettysburg, at Gettysburg, and beyond. In the process, we will examine leadership, personality conflicts, myths, and innuendo within the Army of Northern Virginia that helps define our overall understanding of the Gettysburg campaign. So join us for Lee and Pickett on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. Now, Eric, before we get into tonight's topic, though, do we have any housekeeping or anything to talk about? Probably a few things. I think we got a couple things to talk about tonight. First and foremost, we're, as of recording, in the coronavirus crisis. Don't worry, listeners, we are keeping proper social distancing. Mm-hmm. We have our Clorox wipes here. Yes, we actually do have Clorox wipes. So we're taking all cautions necessary. But, you know, we felt it was important to keep the show going. Continuity. Is society is potentially breaking down. We want the Gettysburg podcast to offer continuity to people who are quarantined and, you know, give you all something to look forward to and listen to. Absolutely. And, of course, this has brought hard times, not only to Gettysburg. I mean, most businesses are closed down right now. The park is open, but there are no tours. We are actually, right now, as guides, not allowed to do tours by proclamation of the governor of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. So it is hard times. And what a lot of people don't realize is when you look at our job, they think, hey, guides, this is like the greatest job in the world. And it It is. is. It is. But – People have to understand that we are not salaried. We do not have benefits. We don't have retirement. We don't have pensions. We don't have any of that. We are independent contractors to the federal government. And with the coronavirus hitting when it has, this is really the worst time of the year for this to be going on. For most guides, we consider April into May as bus season. Groups are coming in, school groups. It's a big time for all of us as guides. Right now, pretty much that's shot for the year. 
So some of our guide colleagues have fallen on some tough times, and we have a program that is out there that I personally, myself, not involved with the podcast, not involved as a guide, me as an individual, I have started a GoFundMe page for our colleagues, for any of them that do need help, you know, getting some groceries, get some medicine, you know, get through these hard times until we have better times. If you're interested, go to the GoFundMe page and just look up Licensed Battlefield Guide Assistance Fund. As of today, we have raised over $2,300 for this fund. Our goal is 5000 so if you can ship in, please do so. If not, even just share the link. And we'll, of course, have that on our social media for you. Um, sometimes just getting the word out is just as important as money itself. Yeah, and I just want to add, you know, this is a great individual effort by Eric. As he said, it is not affiliated with the podcast. I want to be clear, no money from the GoFundMe page is going to myself or to Eric. This is something that was established to uh, try to help other colleagues. So just doing it as a public service and hopefully everybody can contribute something. It would go to a, a long way to a lot of historians, you know, who perform really a great service to people who come to Gettysburg. And this will help them during hopefully during during hard times. But I want to emphasize it is not going to myself or Eric. Once again, it's to our friends, our colleagues who have, you know, having some rough times right now, a rough patch for everybody. But we're going to get through this and hopefully this will be able to help them out. And in the meantime, you have the Battle of Gettysburg podcast to listen to as you're quarantined in your house. The home of all things Dan Sickles. So, you know, I hope if there's anybody out there who maybe is not into Sickles because we've been getting a little commentary about this recently, you know, watch your blood pressure. Don't put your fist through your TV or your radio or your listening device or anything like that. Just be calm. Be calm. Dan Sickles will will lead us to, to better times again, I'm sure. And this kind of gets to a point, you know, we've often talked about on episodes, there's no figure of the battle that creates emotion like Dan Sickles. Nobody. We're told that you know, people even described it as an onslaught of Sickles when we did a two-parter on the murder. Folks, we did a two-parter on the movie Gettysburg. We did a two-parter on Barlow's Knoll. Yeah, nobody said an onslaught of Barlow's Knoll, an onslaught of the movie Gettysburg. By the way, Sickles Onslaught, if I ever form a metal band... That's going to be our name. So the only thing that I want to add there is because Eric and I are bringing this up because we did get a couple comments on social media. Uh, One gentleman used the term onslaught, but a couple others did say enough with the sickles. You know, folks, we're halfway through season two. We've done episodes on a lot of different topics and we're going to continue to do that. But we think Dan Sickles is important, interesting. And, uh, you know, we're not going to change what we're doing either. Damn it. We can't change who we are. Why don't you just ask a fish to not swim in the water if you want us to not talk about Dan Sickles? It just can't be done. And also, this is a Gettysburg podcast. Well, he's the most important individual connected to this battle. Damn right. And I don't mean that he's the greatest general or anything of that matter, but find me an individual that had more of an impact on this battle, for good or bad, an individual that was connected in the memorialization of this battlefield and in the very development of the park itself. All right. You can't find it other than Dan Sickles. Look, you can't. That was the premise behind my book, Sickles at Gettysburg, 10 years ago, and I stand by that. See, I'm doubling down. Now I'm promoting books. So there you go. But yeah, you know, so we just wanted to point that out. I think maybe, though, we could start like a little clock. How many episodes has it been since we haven't had a Dan Sickles episode? 
Like, so what did we do? We did the two-parter on the Sickles murder, which, by yeah. the way, was very well received, other than a few comments about some guys who said, hey, they don't want any more Sickles. Then, correct me if I'm wrong, we did Hunterstown. We did part one of the 11th Corps with Stu Dempsey. This is now the Lee Pickett episode. So our, our Sickles clock is now like up to three episodes that were not about Sickles. Three in a row. Right. This is This is actually a streak, folks. Yeah, that's right. We call it a winning streak. Is that how it goes? It is. And since we don't have baseball, you know, I might have to watch Bull Durham and my mm-hmm. personal favorite baseball movie of all time, Major League. Yeah, right. Where else am I going to see my Indians win a title? Right. Right. Two in a row, three, it's a winning streak, right? Is that how it goes? Yeah. yeah. In our case, a sickle streak. A sickle streak. But in all seriousness, folks, if I can give any bit of advice as a historian, as human beings, it's very natural to our personal feelings influence how we think and view topics. But when it comes to Sickles and really any historic figure, try to be objective. And I think it's easy to go, oh, Sickles is an idiot, all and on for that. That's the easy way out. Yeah, It's a lot harder to really delve into these accounts and try to understand the decision making of these leaders. Yeah, That's hard. Take the hard path. Challenge yourself to be a good historian and be objective. Take the hard path during hard times. You know what? I'll take that one step further. It's easy to say, oh, I love John Buford. Oh, John Buford won the battle of Gettysburg. That, my friends, is easy. If you want the easy answers, we'll do that. Maybe we'll do a Buford episode, just sort of placate the fan base. But damn it, we're we're taking the hard road here and we want you to come with us. Now, before we get into the episode, which is uh, not about sickles, which is not about sickles, we do have a bit of a sad note. Country music icon Kenny Rogers passed away the day before our recording here, ironically enough, on my birthday, which kind of put a damper on my birthday, among everything else. I want to talk about that birthday, too. Yeah, because who doesn't appreciate Kenny Rogers? I mean, great music. Now. The Gambler. The Gambler. Absolutely. Not, and by the way, not the Major League Baseball pitcher, Kenny Rogers. We're talking about the singer. Yes. As far as we know, Texas Rangers great Kenny Rogers is still alive. Right. We're pretty sure he is. Pretty sure. As of recording, he's still alive. We don't know. But for Jim and I, when I think of Kenny Rogers, certainly I think of music, but I also think about a program that was actually very influential on me as a young kid coming up, you know, wanting to be a historian, most everybody thinks of Civil War Journal that showed up on A&E during the 1990s. But there was another show that came on around the same time, The Real West, yeah. hosted by Kenny Rogers. And for my money, the coolest theme and intro cinematography yeah, for any show ever on television. Well, look, when we did the uh, movie episode, we talked about sort of the early to mid 90s, really kind of being an, a golden age for this sort of history, whether it was on TV or at the movies. Think about, I'm thinking like 1993-ish, you know, during the middle of the afternoon, you could turn on the History Channel and they would be doing the Real West and Civil War Journal back to back. I mean, like that was like the best hour or two hours. I don't even remember how long they were, but that was like the best back-to-back doubleheader that guys like us could possibly ask for. And to echo Eric's points, those who know me know that I actually like the West. I'm kind of more interested in the West than I am in the Civil War. So for me, yeah, I mean, I think of Kenny Rogers. You're right. I think of him standing on that dusty street, introducing the latest episode of The Real West, whether it was about Jesse James or Billy the Kid or Wyatt Earp, because for the most part, those are really the only topics they ever cover. But, you know, oh, Bat Masterson too. But you know what I'm saying. Just that's what I'm always going to think of when I think of the gambler. 
and they actually did a Civil War episode on the Real West. I don't remember that Civil one. Civil War West. They talked about like the Red River campaign. Oh, okay, yeah, and yeah. Things out in New Mexico and Arizona and things. So well, that was kind of cool. I mean, you haven't lived until you've heard Kenny Rogers narrate the Red River campaign. I know, I know. I know. I was, it was great. And and I would add to just to sort of close this out too. Also, one of my favorite and one of the most underrated episodes of Seinfeld, I think, is the Kenny Rogers Chicken episode where Kramer gets hooked on it. It's great. It's 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 hilarious. So if you haven't seen that one, I would recommend that as well to wherever Seinfeld is streaming these days. I'm not sure who's got it. So thank you, Kenny Rogers, for the music, for the history. And the chicken. And the chicken. Hey, by the way, too, as Eric mentioned at the outset, yesterday was his birthday. And Eric and I have shared many a good time uh, over his prior birthdays here in Gettysburg, some of which I'm not going to get into on the uh, on the show here. But I did have the marketing department and the interns actually baked you some cupcakes. But then one of them sneezed in the cupcakes and we had to throw the whole batch out or something like that. But Eric, on behalf of the entire staff here at the Battle of Gettysburg podcast, Social Director Mike Reinhardt, sponsors Michael Homula and Jody Wilson, Tammy Myers, who's hosting us today. Might I just wish you a happy birthday? Well, thank you. It was another great birthday, as great as it can be when you can't go out to eat, you can't see a movie, you can't hang out with your friends. Yeah, it, it was magnificent. But what did he do other than mourning the death of Kenny Rogers? He prepped for the latest podcast, which we're about to give you right now. So with that said, we have a special sponsor for tonight's episode. Jim, who's our sponsor? Well, Eric, once again, tonight's sponsor is the Gettysburg Foundation's In the Footsteps of Leaders. In the Footsteps of Leaders is a unique and inspirational leadership program that can be tailored to the individual needs of your company or organization. From a one-day encounter on the battlefield to a three-day event with exclusive access to locations such as the Sherfee Farm, behind-the-scenes view of the Cyclorama, and the Kinsley Leadership Center at the historic Spangler Farm, where we have recorded in the past. Now, if you take an In the Footsteps of Leaders program, you and the your organization will learn leadership lessons from a curriculum developed by battlefield historians, leadership development experts, and business executives. You will increase the ability to address conflict and lead through challenging situations. You can build and develop leadership skills, and you can overcome organizational challenges and prepare for future opportunities. Eric, does this not sound great? It sounds magnificent. Like it sounds the, wonderful. The best leadership program in town. Well, what you guys want to do, folks, is you want to email Jody and Abby at leadership at gettysburgfoundation.org or call 717-339-2154 to customize your own leadership program. And Eric, if anybody else wanted to sponsor us, how can they get a hold of us? Easiest thing to do is reach out to us on social media, on Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg Pod, on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, or you can email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you haven't, follow us on our social media as well. Uh, We'd love to have you take part in the conversation. Also, if you want to help the show, subscribe, give us a review, help share the show, help us get the word out about Gettysburg. So with that, I think let's get into tonight's topic. Let's do it. It's March of 1870. The setting is the Ballard and Exchange Hotels in Richmond. Robert E. Lee, for lack of a better word, is dying. 
Another Confederate icon, John Mosby, has arranged a meeting with the dying Robert E. Lee. He meets General Lee and his daughter. Mosby says that Lee was pale and haggard looking and did not look like the Apollo that I had known in the army. Well, they they meet, they have a conversation on different topics. But after leaving Lee's room, Mosby says that he met General Pickett and told him that he had just been with Lee. According to Mosby, Pickett remarked that if Mosby would go with him, they would call and pay their respects to the general, but Pickett did not want to be alone with him. So Mosby went back with Pickett to see General Lee again. According to Mosby's published recollections, the interview was cold and formal and evidently, quote unquote, embarrassing to both men. It was their only meeting after the war. Now, in a few minutes, Mosby finally rose to leave the room together with Pickett and Pickett spoke to Mosby. According to Mosby, Pickett spoke very bitterly of General Lee, calling him that old man. He had my division massacred at Gettysburg, Pickett exclaimed, to which Mosby replied, well, it made you immortal. And Eric, I think that kind of sets the stage for how we're going to examine the Lee-Pickett relationship today. Did that conversation happen? Did that meeting happen? Did Pickett and Lee really have these these cold feelings about each other? So where do we go from here? Should we rewind back to kind of the beginning of the story and, and see how this might have developed? Yeah, and normally as guides and as historians, when you talk about an event, You do it chronologically. But for us, we felt it was important to start at the end and now kind of work our way and see how does this develop? How do we get to this point? And also try to separate some of the myth from this. And this was actually, as we put out, as we always do for listener questions, we had a number of listener questions about the The Pickett-Mosby-Lee meeting. And so we'll kind of first delve into that a little bit on our thoughts, because this is an often quoted Mm -hmm. account. I've heard guides tell it on tours. It's in books. It's it's all over the place. Yeah. Now, notice, notice during that very dramatic reading, I tried to use the words allegedly several times because frankly, it's not really even clear that that meeting happened. Mosby said it did, but other people, when Mosby published these accounts uh, in a magazine in 1911, other folks came back and said, no, that didn't happen. So, you know, Eric, how do we even cut through all of that? That's a challenge. Now, I think what it speaks to is most likely George Pickett's feelings towards Robert E. Lee. Now, whether or not Lee returned those feelings, that's tough to say, because of course, Lee never left an account of this. Lee is going to be dead in a few months. But I think it is an interesting account because it's really the first time that people really begin to see the heat between these two individuals. Yeah, I would agree. And certainly when Mosby's account was published, several people fired back in newspapers and such and said, no, that didn't happen. And these two guys did not have hard feelings against each other. So Mosby then actually kind of had to defend himself and say, yeah, it did happen. But again, there were other people who said, no, it didn't. And certainly, you think about in the post-war South, even if George Pickett did have these feelings that were very antagonistic towards Robert E. Lee, do you really want to admit that? Look what happens if you Mm -hmm. criticize Robert E. Lee in the post-war South. And really, to me, Pickett is a very tragic figure. Sad. Yeah, it's a really sad story when you look at his life as a whole. I mean, the guy's fame is based around a colossal failure. It's not a moment of glory. And I think that's so much of that shapes Pickett's life. And I think there is a lot of bitterness in his life. I think certainly there's probably going to be a lot of bitterness towards Robert E. Lee. But 
I also see a guy at the end of his life just kind of hanging on to whatever shreds of glory that he kind of has. So kind of a very interesting dynamic. One thing I just want to touch on, when Mosby had to reply to people to defend himself, Mosby said, quote, I was very slightly acquainted with Pickett and know nothing of his differences with General Lee. So even this famous meeting, this famous conversation, which supposedly happens in 1870, isn't really reported on until 1911. Even Mosby is kind of saying, "Mm, you know, I don't really know anything about the differences. But I do think his comment about Pickett's charge making Pickett immortal is absolutely 100% appropriate. I use it on my battlefield tours all the time because quite frankly, if it were not for Pickett's charge, I don't know that I would ever really be talking or thinking about George Pickett. To me, he does nothing else remarkable enough during the war to basically be held in the esteem that he is today. And I know we might draw, I might draw some heat for that and we can talk about that. No, I think if you look at his record, there's nothing that Pickett really does that would put him in, say, that elite level of, say, you know, division commanders we think of in the Army in Northern Virginia. You know, you're not putting him up there with Robert Rhodes or Dorsey Pender or John Bell Hood or A.P. Hill when he was in division command. You, know, you wouldn't put him in that level. And as I said, he's shaped by the tragedy here. I mean, he's one of the most famous officers in American history. I know, for one thing, really. For one thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and so I think that's where that really is. And I think whether or not Mosby actually said that line, the sentiment of that line is certainly correct. It's kind of one of those history moments. If it didn't happen that way, it should have. All right. So do we want to go back to the beginning at this point? Yeah, let's go back. And that's kind of, as we sometimes do, a deep dive into George Pickett. You know, when we looked at this as we're kind of shaping the episode, we could do a deep dive on Robert E. Lee and a deep dive on George Pickett. But I think really for this When are we really going to get a chance to really delve into George Pickett, the man? So this kind of gives us a good chance to do that. Uh, George Edward Pickett was born near Richmond, Virginia on January 16, 1825, and he was raised on his family's plantation at Turkey Island. He was the first of eight children of Robert and Mary Pickett, and they are, of course, a prominent family of quote-unquote old Virginia. He's also a cousin of future Confederate General Henry Heath. Now, in the 1840s, Pickett is actually living in Illinois, in Quincy, Illinois, for that matter, with one of his uncles, Andrew Johnston. Mm -hmm. It's said that he went to Springfield, Illinois to study law, but at the age of 17, he was appointed to the United States Military Academy. Now, you probably see where we're kind of going to this. He's in Illinois. He goes to Springfield. He studies law. law. Gosh, I cannot think of a of a prairie lawyer living in Springfield, Illinois at that time that later goes on to become a pretty famous individual in American history. Are you drawing anything, Joe? Yeah, I've got a vague recollection. Dare I say Lincoln? Oh, that's who it is. Abraham Lincoln. And this is actually goes back to a question. It does. From superfan Brett who asked, how did Pickett get an appointment to West Point? Did it really involve a certain lawyer from Springfield, Illinois? just want to add before we go into that, again, another one of these great myths that surrounds George Pickett. For all of you at home who have the movie Gettysburg on DVD Blu-ray, you watch the extras where they're interviewing Stephen Lang about Pickett. Stephen Lang, you know, who's clearly done some reading on the topic, actually says in the extras that, yeah, you know, Pickett's appointment was secured by Abraham Lincoln. So another very deeply ingrained myth kind of surrounding this guy. And really, this myth takes off in large 
large part because of Pickett's wife, Sally, who Mm -hmm. will write a often used, quote unquote, primary source document that historians have used in the life of George Pickett. And she talks about this connection to Lincoln. Now, Brett's question said a certain lawyer in Springfield, Illinois. Technically, that's accurate. And that is accurate. That certain lawyer is, as we all know, John Stewart. He was a Illinois congressman. He was also a friend of Pickett's uncle, and he was also a law partner of Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. He is the one that is going to, of course, push to see that Pickett gets put in at West Point. So is there a chance that Pickett would have interacted maybe with Abraham Lincoln? Possibly. Or that the uncle or the uncle's friend knew Lincoln? Probably more likely. Yeah, I think so. So there's there's a chance these two could have crossed paths. But at this point, Lincoln was actually a Illinois state legislator. They have no impact on federal appointments. Mm -hmm. So I think over time, it morphs from Lincoln's law partner to Lincoln himself. Because what makes a better story? You got appointed by Congressman John Stewart or you got appointed by future President Abraham Lincoln? So right away, I would say we've sort of toppled one cherished romantic myth of the Civil War or the Lost Cause. Let's put it this way, folks. There's no evidence that Lincoln had any part in securing his appointment. Other than, again, as Eric said, the recollections of Pickett's wife, Sally, who comes into the story later and, quite frankly, is not a reliable source in any way, shape or form. And I suspect not the last we've heard of Sally on today's installment. And this is important because when you read about Pickett, to me, he kind of comes across as a young man without any real direction or sort of rudder in life. He's just kind of floating along. And certainly for his family, that was a cause of concern. You want him to be able to be something in life. You want him to be secure in his future. And a military career would do that as an officer. It would also give him some level of prestige in society. Which, again, is not unusual. You see this with our historical heroes of the early to mid-1800s all the time. You know, the farm boys or sort of the guys drifting around aimlessly who go to West Point to make something of themselves. So, again, you know, so far, I'm not hearing anything remarkable. When Pickett does arrive at West Point, he, by all accounts, was very popular as a cadet, very outgoing, um, which I think kind of is in keeping with the idea we have of Pickett, at least pre-Gettysburg. He was mischievous and was fond of often playing pranks on his fellow cadets. Mm -hmm. It was said, and I quote, he was a man of ability, but belonging to a cadet set that appeared to have no ambition for class standing and wanted to do only enough to secure their graduation. So this sounds like a very outgoing guy, but not a guy that's really going to buckle down and be very studious. Yeah, really throughout his life, he doesn't come across as really a scholar or a deep thinker. And, you know, again, he graduates last in his class of 1846. Now, again, West Point grades were seldom a predictor of battlefield success. It is worth noting that Longstreet's staffer, Moxley Searle, would later recall that Longstreet always, quote, made us give Pickett things very fully, indeed, sometimes stay with him to make sure he did not get astray. So again, it sort of portrays this image of, you know, maybe not the brightest bulb in the Confederacy. Yeah, and I think you see that sort of throughout his career. There's no real evidence, like you said, that Pickett is a deep thinker. This is not a guy that's overanalyzing things or often seeing the big picture. I think he just kind of, what are my orders? I'm going to do it. Once again, do just enough. 
you know, there's a great line in the movie. I'm not saying it's accurate, but I think it carries the spirit, right? Where Stephen Lang says, well, the Yankees got all the smart ones and look where it got them. You know, again, there's no indication Pickett said that, but I think that sort of carries the essence of probably how he looked at these things. Now, fortunately for George Pickett, as he graduates as the goat of his class, dead last, Goat, not greatest of all time, but in Civil War terms, goat means bottom of the class. Absolutely, yeah. Not greatest of all yeah, time. Yeah, just making sure you know that modern terminology isn't confusing anybody. Yeah, and of course, when we think greatest of all time, we naturally think- Ric Flair. Ric Flair, nature yeah. boy Ric Flair. Pickett is not the Ric Flair of the Army of Northern Virginia. Now, what I think is interesting, there's a parallel in many respects to what's going to happen with Pickett's life and that of another famous goat at West Point, George Armstrong Custer. They graduate dead last, but as fate would have it, there's a war. And that gives them an opportunity to probably have upward mobility they may not have had otherwise. In the case of George Armstrong Custer, it's the American Civil Mm -hmm. War. In the case of George Pickett, it's the war with Mexico in the 1840s. And this is where Pickett begins to gain some recognition, in some respects, some national recognition for his role in the Mexican War, where he's also going to come into contact with an individual that in many ways is going to play a major role in his career in the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. During the Mexican-American War, 2nd Lieutenant Pickett shows great bravery and receives a brevet promotion to captain during the Battle of Chapultepec when he took the colors from wounded Lieutenant James Longstreet and carried them over the fortress's walls. This is one of the things that, as you said, is going to kind of bring Pickett into a little bit of prominence even before we get to the Civil War. And it also shows an individual that while maybe not being the smartest out there, it's pretty brave. Yeah. And yeah. I think sometimes on a battlefield, bravery is sometimes more important than even intelligence. Well, and I think, too, he's imbued with kind of the romanticism of the era that bravery and being the man and taking charge is what is ultimately going to make a name for himself above, you know, studying books and, and things like that. And again, as we said before, that very much makes him in common with a guy like George Armstrong Custer. After the war with Mexico is over, Pickett is stationed out west in a number of different postings. He's in Texas for a while. But in January 1851, Pickett is going to marry Sally Harrison Minji, the daughter of Dr. John Minji, and she was the great-great-grandniece of President William Henry Harrison. Mm -hmm. So, hey, he's kind of marrying up a little bit. Unfortunately for Pickett, Sally, this other Sally, will die during childbirth Mm -hmm. in Texas. Yeah. Now we have a pretty significant family tragedy to befall him. Yeah, which again, you know, we see in the Armistead episode and elsewhere is again not uncommon as these guys are making their way through the pre-Civil War frontier. Now Pickett will have another marriage, uh, this one to an Indian woman that will also end when she dies in childbirth sometime around 1856 or 1857. But when Pickett later returned east, he left his surviving half-Indian son named James with a friend, and the boy was later put in the care of a white farmer couple. Pickett never returned for the child, although this man did grow up uh, to be known as James Pickett. He was an artist. He never married. He would later correspond with Pickett's later wife, Sally, and uh, James Pickett died in 1889. So just a little bit of uh, interesting trivia there. People might not realize that branch of the uh, Pickett family tree existed. Now, it's during this time that Pickett and a future Gettysburg icon are going to get into a bit of a rough patch of each other. And this leads us to a question 
from Superfan Scott, who's going to ask, speaking of challenging relationships, why did Pickett challenge Winfield Scott Hancock to a duel? Now, this is an interesting moment here because here we've got two future Gettysburg adversaries trying to go at it with each other, according to some accounts, in 1853. Mm -hmm. This is a good story. It sounds pretty cool. It sounds in keeping with 19th century culture. But is it really true? And that's where we're kind of going to kind of let's look at this a little bit. You know, Jim, where do you come down on this? Yeah, you know, I don't know. This is one of those things. I think the original source is one of Larry Tagg's books. You know, this question came in right before airtime, and I would kind of have to go back and see what Tagg's source was, which is a good reminder, folks. Always check your sources. You know, the interesting thing is if you Google this topic, it comes up very frequently on the internet and in blogs and things like that, but it's almost the same soundbite repeated over and over and over and over again. Yet I have Edward Longacre's more scholarly book, Pickett, Leader of the Charge, sitting here right in front of me, and I don't see a single reference to Hancock in that book. I think you said, Eric, before the show that Leslie Gordon's bio doesn't mention it as yeah, well. Yeah, her biography doesn't mention anything. You don't really see this coming up in even Han- Hancock biographies. Yeah, yeah. So I think my question is, if these other scholars are really Delving into this, I have to think if he's getting into a duel with an officer the level of Winfield Scott Hancock later, that you'd have to use that. Yeah. And so I think this is something that maybe we have to dig in a little bit more. But once again, it's caution. Always check your sources. Don't just... Take it at, at face value. Well, and the other thing, too, is if you ever read blogs, notice how many blogs often use like the exact same verbiage. And I mean word for word, which kind of tells you everybody is more or less just copying from the same source. If this episode happened, what I think is interesting about it is, again, it's another reminder of how much these guys would have interacted, how much they would have known each other prior to the Civil War and prior to the uh, Gettysburg campaign. And to me, if this does occur, it also gives us an insight a little bit into George Pickett, the man. In terms of whatever precipitated this, if anything actually did, it shows that he is very sensitive to any slight against his personal sense of honor and to his sense as a man. And we're going to see that a little bit later as it goes into that relationship with Robert E. Lee. But we could say even if this doesn't occur, it's some interesting foreshadowing. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, too, is, man, he's he's old school Virginia, you know, and if somebody slights your honor, he's he's going to challenge the guy to a duel. OK, let's just throw it on real quick. Let's say the duel happens. Who wins? Hancock or Pickett? What are they dueling with? Oh, forks, uh, opera glasses. Yeah. Plates, a boyish frolic, a boyish frolic, maybe. OK, let's let's get him in a ring. Ten minutes in a wrestling ring. Who wins? All right. Ten minutes in the ring for the television championship. Yeah. Um, Pickett and Hancock. I'm going Hancock. I mean, I think I think Pickett would be a scrappy, probably technically sound. Yeah. Um, but Hancock is a pretty big guy. Hancock would just be brute force. You think? Yeah, yeah. I see Hancock being more of a brawler. I think it would be. Yeah, I picture Hancock in the ring being like an Ole Anderson. Yeah, I, and I, th- I think the key here though is that it happens early because, as we know, you know Hancock puts on a little bit of weight after the war, and although Pickett, you know, isn't exactly in great shape after the war, you know, maybe that would have been kind of a great old timers match reunion. Oh but yeah, in in their youth, I, I guess I'm going with Hancock. Yeah, I mean, just based physically, Hancock was a bigger guy, even yeah. in good shape. He's bigger than than Pickett. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give Hancock the edge in this Imagine one. the robes the two of them would have wore into the ring. That would have been epic. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. No yeah. doubt. 
All right, should we move on? We should, because the next time that Pickett sort of becomes a national figure is during his time as an army officer in what was then the Washington Territory Mm -hmm. in the late 1850s, where he's going to play a prominent role in one of the most fascinating wars in American history. (laughs) Everybody's favorite war, the Pig War. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what happens is in, it's 1859, as Eric said, and Pickett's leading a small infantry garrison on San Juan Island that successfully participated in a standoff against about a thousand British forces and three warships. There was some sort of boundary dispute over the shooting of a pig, and hence it became known as the Pig War. Now, one thing Pickett famously exclaimed during the episode was, we'll make a bunker hill of it. So it sounds like young rash. Pickett is, you know, not afraid to throw down and potentially ready to uh, to bring on some heat. But ultimately, diplomacy did prevail and the pig war did not develop into anything more extensive. Now, one interesting note from Pickett's time in the Pacific Northwest is that in Bellingham, Washington, there still stands mm-hmm. today what is referred to as the Pickett House, yeah. the home that Pickett yep. lived in. By all accounts, it is the oldest house still in its original foundation in the Pacific Northwest. So kind of a cool little yeah, that is tidbit cool. there. I don't know if we can verify it. I'm not an expert in Pacific Northwest <laughs> architecture and historic structures, but it sounds good. We'll yeah. yeah, I don't know if it's the oldest one out there. I know people. I know Wayne Motts has visited the place, so you know it's still there and a uh, legitimate tourist attraction. So yeah, bully for Pickett and his ties to the Northwest. So what this shows is that Pickett, between his service in the Mexican War, of course, his time in the Pig War, that was getting actually a lot of play in American newspapers this time. And young Pickett, as this dashing officer, is actually being mentioned quite a bit. It does, of course, show I think some things about his. Personality. So we do see, hey, a guy that might be a little rash. Yeah. Might be really itching hot-headed, for a fight. Hot headed. Yeah. You know, and once again, not thinking through the larger implications. You turn your position to a bunker hill against British redcoats. A guess thousand what you, of them. Guess and warships. Guess what you've just started? Yeah. You've just started a war. Not a, not just any war, but the pig war. The pig war. It could be a world war fought over a pig. I just had an idea. Sickles Mania 2, the pig war. Maybe should we think about that? You know what? This could be something. This could be something. We got to get Sickles Mania 1 past the coronavirus first, but maybe the pig war for for number two. So at this point now, sectional tensions are beginning to rise. The American Civil War is going to break out. George Pickett, being a native Virginian, makes the choice that many native Virginians are going to make. He goes to fight with his home state. And what we see is that initially in regimental command and brigade command, Pickett performs actually pretty well. Mm -hmm. I think he's a very capable brigade commander, especially at Gaines's Mill, um, where he's going to perform pretty well. Yeah, yeah. So we did actually have a listener question that said, you know, did he ever perform well before Gettysburg? And I think we could look at Gaines's Mill. Yeah, and you know, my understanding is Williamsburg and Seven Pines, he does does well enough too. You know, Gaines's Mill is unique because he actually gets wounded there. I think he gets um, shot in the shoulder, if I remember correctly, which is going to take him away from the army for three months. Now again, in in fairness, there was one account at Gaines's Mill when he was wounded, uh, one account whose credibility has, has frankly been questioned by some people, did have him quote unquote bewail himself and declaring the wound to be mortal when he was shot. But, you know, you're going to get your good accounts and your bad accounts. Yeah, but all in, I've always sort of understood Pickett, the brigade commander, to be pretty good and pretty competent. 
More importantly with this wound, though, is it keeps them on the shelf for a number of months. Let's think what happens in those months after that, the rest of the seven days. Second Manassas, Antietam, Pickett's not there. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's missing out as an officer valuable time to develop and yeah. learn your craft. We will say, I think if Pickett would have been a brigade commander for the war, would probably been a pretty good brigade commander. But he doesn't get the experience that I think will serve him moving up, which very quickly is what's going to happen to him. He gets promoted. Well, you know, and it's funny you say that because that's the exact same spiel that I use on Dan Sickles. And in my point being not to get onto a Sickles rant, but my point being, again, I think this is another thing that is more common in the Civil War and particularly with our generals that we know and love from the Battle of Gettysburg than people often realize. You know, we're, we're used to thinking of these guys in a Gettysburg prism and thinking of them coming in whether they fought at a division command or a corps level command here at Gettysburg. But really, if you go back and look, a lot of these guys come into Gettysburg with not a heck of a lot of combat experience at the level that we know them as on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. And as we'll see, that will be true with division commander George Pickett. And what we see in the aftermath of those battles in 1862 is that a lot of officers are getting killed or wounded. They're now on the shelf. Pickett's coming back. He's a West Pointer. He's had some success at Brigade Command. Make him a division commander. It makes sense. It's logical. And frankly, that's why many of us don't recognize the order of battle after Gettysburg, because the same thing just keeps happening through 63, 64, and 65. So I guess the bottom line is not a lot of job security in these positions. Not in Lee's army. Now, Pickett's men are going to be lightly engaged at Fredericksburg, and they're actually going to miss the Chancellorsville campaign. In the spring of 1863, two divisions of James Longstreet's corps, John Bell Hood's and George Pickett's, are actually detached near Suffolk, Virginia. Really, it's a foraging operation more than anything. Really, not much is coming of the Suffolk campaign, but they do miss Chancellorsville. Yeah. It's around this same time that Pickett is falling in love again. Mm -hmm. This time with a Virginia teenager, LaSalle Sally Corbell. We're beginning to see some problems during the Suffolk campaign because Pickett is in love. He wants to see the object of his affection. And he begins to go back and forth between Suffolk and Richmond quite a bit. Now, Mm -hmm. can anybody begin to see some problems of an officer just leaving when he wants in the middle of a campaign? cause a little bit of problems, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I think it would. You know, Longstreet staffer Moxley Searle recalled that Pickett, quote, fell in love with all the ardor of youth and that he would sometimes leave his command to spend nights with Sally. Now, on one occasion, Pickett asked Searle for permission to leave because Longstreet was, quote unquote, tired of dealing with it. So Pickett just kind of went to the staffer hoping he would take care of it. Searle refused to give Pickett permission to go, but Pickett went all the same. Nothing could hold him back from that pursuit. And Searle went on, I don't think his division benefited by such carpet at night doings in the field. So we probably should have mentioned it, but we didn't. But as Pickett was getting promoted here to Major General, he is now serving under Longstreet. And just to kind of close that loop here. So remember, he's now got kind of his old friend going back to the Mexican War days. He's got his old friend now. Some people think, you know, kind of looking out for him and taking care of him. As I said earlier, there was that one often used quote where Longstreet supposedly made the staff officers give things to Pickett very very, very fully. But now we've, you know, we've sort of got maybe some cover going on here from uh, his commanding officer and his buddy, James Longstreet. 
And what we see is an officer that maybe does not take his responsibilities as serious as maybe he should. Think back to even George Pickett, the cadet at West Point. Mm-hmm. Once again, I think you could say he, he was not a cadet that takes his responsibilities very seriously. I mean, imagine he did this nonsense serving under Stonewall Jackson. Yeah, right. He'd have been out. It, he would not. This would not have been tolerated. I think if it wasn't for his good friend being his boss, this could have, I think, seriously impacted this. Now, yeah. This is part of Robert E. Lee's army in Northern Virginia. Yeah. Word's going to get back to the commander about this. Well, I wanted to t- Yeah, and, and I wanted to talk a little bit about that because, you know, some – I don't want to leave anybody with a misapprehension here because we kind of opened the door. And some people have speculated that Pickett's promotion was really due to the influence of his friend Longstreet. And although their personal relationship did not hurt Pickett's cause, he did also have seniority and that good record as a brigadier. So I just wanted to point out with sort of the topic of the show here tonight, Lee did endorse the promotion, which would really become Pickett's last within the Army of Northern Virginia. So I just didn't want to, though, give anybody the impression that we were saying Pickett's promotion was undeserved. What we're talking more about now is, is he as attentive to his duties, you know, as he should be. But I would say, too, you know, serving under Longstreet, remember, Lee values Longstreet's opinion. So if, you know, Pickett is an okay guy to Longstreet, I'm thinking at least early enough, that's probably good enough for Robert E. Lee. But to your point then, you know, are sort of some of these sorts of things, you know, finding out Pickett's absenting himself to basically go chasing after a girl. Is some of that getting back to, you know, the the frosty and duty-bound Robert E. Lee? I'm thinking it probably is. When you look at Robert E. Lee, the man, one thing that Lee values above all else is Mm self-control and duty and duty. Pickett's not really showing that right now. I think if you want to get on Robert E. Lee's bad side, there could be, I think, already some some warning flags being raised, if you will. Yes, he trusts Longstreet's opinion, but I have to think Robert E. Lee is looking at this kind of wondering – you know, okay, Longstreet thinks this is a good guy, but I have some things I'm getting concerned about here, too. Yeah, there's there's one account in January of 1863, and I don't have the quote in front of me, but Lee supposedly criticized the condition and the discipline of Pickett's men to Longstreet. And again, I think especially lacks discipline is going to be an issue with Mars Robert. So as we turn our attention now to the Gettysburg campaign, what we're seeing is an officer in George Pickett that might be promoted above his capabilities, but we don't really know that yet. Also, his actions have possibly caught the eye of his boss, Robert E. Lee, in a way that might not be the best, maybe causing a little bit of concern there. But Hood's division, Pickett's division, are going to rejoin the Army in Northern Virginia, and they're, of course, going to now take part in the invasion of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And this is where we begin to see another little bit of foreshadowing into the relationship of Robert E. Lee and George Pickett. Yeah, so it's around June 26th near Hagerstown, Maryland, as some of the command structure of the Army of Northern Virginia are passing through the town. And a popular anecdote goes that a young lady asked General Lee for a lock of his hair. Lee declined politely, but he told the young lady that, quote, he was confident that General Pickett would be pleased to give one of his curls. And I guess some of the men had a hearty laugh at that, but reportedly the proud and sensitive Pickett did not like jokes like that being made at his expense. So as as you said, Eric, it kind of sort of shows us maybe there's a little bit of, if not cracks there, at least Lee kind of saying, hey, this guy isn't my style. He isn't my way of doing things. 
And it's very much, we talk about if there was that duel with Hancock. Gee, that's kind of a bit of a slap against Pickett. Yeah, I'm sure if word gets back to Pickett, how he's going to feel about that. But nonetheless, it shows that at least the commanding general feels you're almost the butt of a joke. Yeah, right. right, That to me is more concerning than anything else. (laughs) But we should add, we did have a listener question about Pickett's hair. Yes, Pickett did wear his hair in sort of the long perfumed ringlets. And again, compare that to Robert E. Lee, you know, duty, keeping things tight and that sort of thing. And yeah, he's probably got this guy riding next to him with, you know, long hair and everything. Lee's probably looking at this guy at times thinking, you know, what the hell. And we did have another listener question, which asked, did Pickett get that perfume off of a dead Frenchman? <laughs> did we really get that yes, question? Yes, we actually did get that question. <laughs> I'm not sure if I have did no or idea. not. You know what? What the hell? He got it off a dead Frenchman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I know they do that in the movie, but any original source on that probably comes from Sally. And again, I'm throwing that out the window. Yeah, yeah, that's, there you go. But since the topic came up, we've got a quote here from, again, Moxley Sorrell, who we might as well use. And he described Pickett as, quote, a singular figure indeed, a medium-sized, well-built man, straight, erect, and in well-fitting uniform, an elegant riding whip in hand. His appearance was distinguished and striking, but the head... The hair were extraordinary. Long ringlets flowed loosely over his shoulders, trimmed and highly perfumed. So, you know, that's the description of Pickett. What I always say on my battlefield tours is I kind of try to put people in the context and say, look, George Pickett is a guy that you could not fathom in the modern military. You know, you just wouldn't have anybody doing that stuff looking that way. But This is, you know, one of the reasons why I think we all love the 1800s and particularly the Civil War, because you just got such a crazy cast of characters. And I've often wondered with Pickett how much of his physical appearance is possibly a result of maybe some insecurities he himself has. You know, you often think about people that are in a role of importance that maybe are not fit for that position. Sometimes they compensate in other manners to try to show that, yes, I am capable of this. And what I see sometimes with Pickett is there's a sense of almost self-doubt in him sometimes, that it's almost a false bravado coming forward to almost, if I think it and if I say it, it's going to be, even though I don't feel inside, it will be. Mm, okay. And I think some of this might be an outward manifestation of that, if you will. You know, I want to look the beau ideal of a yeah, soldier. I right. want to show this valiant image rather than just go out and do it. He wants to show it. Pickett, as we've talked about, is not the sharpest tool in the shed. He's now got a pretty important position. And you have to wonder at some point, does that stress sort of start to kind of get to him a little bit? So you kind of look to these other diversions, such as going to see Sally, sort of dress the part. You try to act the part, sort of fake it until you make it. You know, I'm just thinking Pickett's just in his mind, kind of the stereotypical 19th century hopeless romantic. And I think there was another question, too, about how Pickett's men felt about him. And I think for the most part, I think most of his men did like serving under him. But thinking as we're talking about this, there's also supposedly that other quote where he's kind of riding by the men and maybe somebody doesn't even recognize him or realize, you know, it's the major general. But somebody says something like, hey, mister, come out of that hair, you know, and again, and he stops and and sort of reprimands the guy. Again, whether that's a true story or not, that's one that's also often attributed to Pickett. So I'm just thinking the dude is like romance in overload, you know, and he's, as you said, you use the term the beau ideal. I think, you know, George Pickett, he's not the only guy at Gettysburg like that, but he certainly fits that mold. 
dare we say, in some respects, Custer? Oh, no doubt. No doubt. You know, Custer's younger. Obviously, he's not playing for the other team. But imagine putting Custer and Pickett in a ring for 20 minutes. Imagine that. Imagine the entrance music, the robes, the hair, the ring girls. I mean, man, that that would be epic. Yeah, I we need to book that match. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a little bit about the march in the invasion of Pennsylvania through Hagerstown up through towards Chambersburg. But real quick, let's kind of give a short summation of the movements of Pickett's division, getting them here to Gettysburg. By June 30th, as they're basically passing through Chambersburg towards Cashtown, they being Longstreet's first corps. Longstreet was ordered on the 30th to advance with his corps towards Cashtown. However, Pickett's division was left behind to Chambersburg, specifically by Lee's orders to quote-unquote guard the trains and secure the rear until they could be relieved by John and Bowden's cavalry. Now again, a lot of people read something into this. You know, Lee's habit of detaching guys that he doesn't like and things of that nature. But you know, you guys got to remember too that if Longstreet is basically the last passing through Chambersburg, you're going to leave somebody behind from his corps. And if you're going to leave one of the divisions behind from Longstreet's corps, you're probably going to pick the smallest one. And unfortunately, that smallest one is Pickett's division. And Pickett's division was so small because a lot of us will remember that he basically had two brigades under Corson Jenkins that had been left behind as the Army of Northern Virginia moved north. Now, Pickett spent a good portion of the spring in summer complaining about this to Army headquarters, and he actually had an ally with him on that in the form of Robert E. Lee. And there's correspondence going back and forth from Pickett to Army headquarters saying, when when am I going to get Corson Jenkins back? And Lee is going to Jefferson Davis saying, when am I going to get Corson Jenkins back? And, you know, Lee basically saying, stop bothering me. I want them back too. And there's, there's a lot of that going back and forth. So I don't particularly put a lot of stock into the idea that Pickett was left behind on purpose, other than the fact that he's the smallest division here. But I think knowing Pickett, it's pretty safe to assume that he probably did sulk on this a little bit and was not happy with the assignment, as again, the beau ideal, sort of traditional romantic, would not have liked that assignment. And think about being a division commander in the Army of Northern Virginia at this time. Look at some of your counterparts and the records that they have put together. You know, let's compare Pickett's wartime experience to that of A.P. Hill or Dorsey Pender or John Bell Hood. They've got a much better resume. They got to take part in these victories under Lee and have been able to make a name for themselves. Pickett hasn't had that opportunity. Mm-hmm. He's out of Chancellorsville. He doesn't take part in the great victory yeah. of the war. He's now left in Chambersburg, which I could see in his mind would be a bit of a slight, although, hey, somebody's got to be the somebody's last division. Do it. Yeah. And I think also, to your point about the two brigades he's missing, these were two veteran, very good brigades yeah. that he had, and certainly you'd want those in your ranks. Yeah, I agree. And just to add on to your point, if we didn't touch on it already, so remember, folks, Gettysburg is Pickett's first campaign in combat commanding this division. So in addition to being, you know, the last man left behind and the smallest one, you compare him to John Bell Hood, you're not leaving Hood behind. And, you know, Lafayette McClaws, well, you know, there's some questions against McClaws from the Chancellorsville campaign. But at the end of the day, his division during the Gettysburg campaign, he's still got a couple thousand more guys than Pickett does. So I think Pickett's the kind of the odd man out. 
So now George Pickett and his division will arrive on the battlefield of Gettysburg on July 2nd, around the time that Longstreet's Corps is starting to go into action. So now Pickett and his division are going to once again be sort of bystanders to a great attack. Mm -hmm. Which brings us to a listener question from superfan Adam, who's going to write, not having Pickett on July 2nd hurt Longstreet's efforts, but was Lee hesitant to have Pickett at all in the campaign? Was this the reason he kept emphasizing to Longstreet to plan it well because he doubted the abilities of Pickett? Yeah, thanks for that question, Adam. That's an interesting question. I don't think so. I mean, I don't think he's doubting or hesitant to use Pickett in any way, shape, or form. You know, as Eric mentioned, Pickett's division arrives on the field afternoon of July 2nd. I have seen accounts of them starting from Chambersburg as early as about 2 a.m. that morning. Now, if you do the math on that, if they start around 2, 3 a.m. and they get to Gettysburg mid-afternoon, they've covered roughly 24, 25 miles in the last 12 hours. Now, that's not the world's greatest marching speed, but 25 miles, you know, we throw parades and, and roses out for the 6th Corps in the Army of the Potomac for the force march that they make. 25 Miles ain't bad. So I think really, you know, when they get up there, Pickett actually wrote in advance to communicate with Longstreet. And according to Staff Officer Walter Harrison, you know, Lee replied, tell General Pickett, I shall not want him this evening to let his men rest and I will send word when I want them. I think it's just a practical. These guys have gone 25 miles. They can't go into combat. Later on in some of the memoirs, some of Pickett's men said, oh, we were ready. We could have done it. But 25 miles, really? I'm not seeing that. And from Lee's perspective, I think, too, depending on the time he arrives in the field, what's going to be accomplished, Lee's probably thinking, hey, I might have to fight out another day. Yeah, right. Right. Pickett's division might serve me better on July 3rd than throwing them into attacks that might not go anywhere on July 2nd. You're exactly right. And as we know, that's exactly what's going to happen. So now it is July 3rd, 1863. Some might argue this is the most important day in the lives of Robert E. Lee and George Pickett. It's also an interesting prism to see how George Pickett behaves on the battlefield. And also, how does Robert E. Lee react to that behavior on the battlefield? Or does he react to that behavior. So let's start to kind of unpack some of these things here. Yeah, and quick disclaimer, because something just occurred to me. Yes, folks, we're referring to it as Pickett's Charge, as it's popularly known throughout history. Please do not bust our stones on social media that we did not call it the Pickett, Pettigrew, Trimble Charge. We get it. We get it. Eric's here. Eric's a Pettigrew guy. But for all intents and purposes, just go with us on this picket thing. So anyways, having said that, yeah, as Longstreet's only unengaged division up to this point, Pickett becomes a logical choice to participate in Lee's attack on July 3rd. You know, and again, Sally and some of the Lost Cause people afterwards kind of talk about that Pickett's men were hand-chosen. You know, they were the flower of the Confederacy for this great moment. And I know even some modern historians say, well, Pickett was held back because Lee wanted Virginia to be represented in this final moment. I can't say all of that's wrong, but I personally would disagree with all of that. Pickett is the only fresh division on the battlefield. They're gonna spearhead the attack. And as Lee says, Longstreet, reinforced by Pickett's three brigades, was ordered to attack the next morning. So as we move into the famous attack that will bear his name, I want our listeners for a moment to just pause, close their eyes, 
And imagine in your head, if I say George Pickett, early afternoon, July 3rd, 1863, what are you envisioning right now? You're envisioning him riding up and down his lines, cheering on his men. You're seeing him anxious for a fight, almost giddy to get into this fight. The hair flowing in the breeze. Absolutely. You know, come on, Virginia. For all Virginia. Of this, you know, right. all this stuff. And now imagine just a few hours later, what's the image you have of George Pickett? This broken, defeated man. Talk about two extremes in just a matter of hours. Mm-hmm. Now in the interim... A lot has gone on. And this isn't really a Pickett's Charge episode. We will do that down the road, really more blow by blow of what happens. Um, I believe, I think Jim wrote a book on Pickett's Charge. Oh, stop, Eric. I I appreciate that. Yes. Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg, co-authored with Wayne Motts and Steve Stanley. Hey, you know, we're not guiding. We got to sell books. So (laughs) sorry, folks. And if you're quarantined, you would want to read books, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. So we had a lot of listener questions on not so much the attack that bears his name, but where was George Pickett in the attack? So we're going to kind of dive a little bit into that right now because I think there's some interesting accounts and some questions on to where exactly he was. Yeah, yeah. Great segue, Eric. You know, a couple thoughts that I have on all of this. I think, first of all, you know, in the early hours of the afternoon is the cannonade and all of that stuff. I don't I don't know what you think, but I don't get the sense that Pickett is actively involved with Lee and Longstreet in the planning of the assault. And even, you know, if you think about Longstreet sort of giving messages directly to Edward Porter Alexander on the artillery side, tell Pickett when it's time to go. Tell Pickett when you can support him. And things of that nature. So I think there's an account of one meeting where Pickett and Lee and Longstreet and maybe Heath and some of the other guys are together. But that great scene in the movie where you have where Longstreet calls Pickett, Pettigrew and Trimble together and kind of lines out in the dirt, you know, who's going to do what that probably doesn't happen. So you can infer what you want into that, whether they, you know, they just want Pickett to do what he's told and are not so much looking at his input. But as things start to come to fruition and we get close and closer to the attack. There are some surviving accounts of people saying, you know, Pickett's really enthusiastic about that. He really thinks it's going to be success. And I think more than anything, Pickett is excited that this is his opportunity. His division is the spearhead of the attack, and this is his moment really to represent the Army of Northern Virginia in action. So really, by all accounts, prior to the attack, as Eric alluded to, Pickett is really ready to go. He thinks this can work. And put yourself in Pickett's shoes here. Many of the Confederates know the stakes of this invasion. Potentially a victory somewhere in Pennsylvania might be the end of this war. And imagine if you're the division commander of the unit that breaks the Union line, that wins the battle, that secures the independence of your nation. My God, they will be building Pickett Mm -hmm. statues everywhere. Instead of just Pickett's buffets, you would have Pickett's statues. Pickett's statues. I mean, he would be an icon. He would raise to that level that he is desperately seeking. And, you know, I'm thinking, and that's a good point, I'm thinking – You know, Lee is on the field. Lee is observing what's going on, trying to talk about the Lee-Pickett relationship here. I think at this point, Lee's probably happy to see Pickett fired up and ready to go. You know, your splendid division is ready, General Pickett. So I'm thinking at least at this point, Lee is liking what he's seeing. Now, as you said in the intro here, we know in an hour or two, 
things are going to be radically different. Yeah, we have a number of variant accounts of where Pickett is. You, know, you have some by the Kadori farm. Mm-hmm. You have some that even kind of have him around the peach orchard. Yeah. So, you know, some have him the last swale before the Union line. I think we have to often, when it comes to those accounts, look at when they were written. Yeah. And because some of that could be shaped by the prism of failure. You know, I would imagine if I'm Pickett, you're trying to get as many good vantage points as you can for this. You have a pretty big front. So I think you could see Pickett being a general on the move Mm -hmm. that day. Which he should have been. Which would have made sense that we see him in different locations, which as a division commander, he should have been. But keep in mind also, maybe be a little bit back, but contrast the leadership of Pickett as a division commander to that of Isaac Trimble and Johnston Pettigrew. Both these men are wounded. Mm -hmm. They're by all accounts right in the thick of it. And we don't really get that for Pickett as much. No, we didn't. And, you know, we I thought we wrote a nice sidebar about this in the Pickett's Charge book. But if you want other sources, I would also recommend Kathy George Harrison's book on Pickett's Charge, which to me was really sort of the first book I ever saw to kind of summarize this. Yeah, I know we got we had a question from Superfan Phil in Ohio. You know, where was Pickett during Pickett's Charge? Uh, as you alluded to, Eric, you know, the Kadori farm is always a popular choice because in, in no part because that that's where he shows up near that in the cyclorama painting and i think the cyclorama more than anything has really perpetuated this idea that pickett made it to the kadori farm and then of course in the movie gettysburg they have pickett knocked off his horse at a kadori like barn which has probably perpetuated that with people union general alexander webb when told that pickett made it to the kadori farm webb laughed and replied let us be kind to him he is said to have been hidden from us by the the Kadori buildings. Folks, if you think about this on the battlefield, if Pickett and his mounted staff are on the east side of the Emmitsburg Road near the Kadori building, bullets are flying, canister is flying, standards Vermonters are right there shooting up Pickett's men. I can't imagine a major general and his staff escaping unharmed and unwounded from the Kadori buildings. So I don't see it happening. Or if you run them off, no union account of we skedaddled a general and staff. Yeah. I mean, somebody would have written that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, this was a controversy among the veterans. You know, as Eric said, you want to look at when stuff was written. But also, too, I think as Pickett and Pickett's men became more and more covered with glory, so to speak, people, you know, from the other states – North Carolina, places like that, kind of came back and said, well, wait a minute, nobody even knows where this guy was during the charge. And and that's a big part of it. There was a lot written about this. You know, Epa Hutton wrote about it. And there was one particular major in the 11th Virginia who said, you know, we never heard where Pickett was located or placed. But supposedly there was one account that he saw some of Pickett's staff members drawing whiskey from a surgeon's wagon in the rear. And they assumed, you know, if the staff was there. Pickett must be nearby. One thing I'm going to say about this, we're not doing a blow-by-blow on Pickett's charge, but we know at least during the later portions of the charge, Pickett via a staff officer, the staff officer is sent to Longstreet asking for reinforcements, which ultimately brings in the support of Wilcox and Lang on Pickett's right. So at least up to that point in the charge, Pickett has got to be on the field, active enough as a major general should be, to be doing what he should be doing. And you would think you would need to be on the move. I mean, mm-hmm. As we said before, it's a wide front, but it's also the terrain there is very challenging to what you're going to be able to see at certain times. So there's not really one stationary point he could be 
that will give him a commanding view with the swales and everything else. You've got to move around a little bit to get different views of what's going on for his brigades in this attack. Yeah. And so there's a guy from South Carolina, Kershaw's brigade, who says that Pickett and team were drunk. So not only are they, you know, out of harm's way, but they're actually drunk during the famous assault. And then again, that this was somewhere near the Sherfy property and the Peach Orchard. I think where the Confederate veterans, you know, they kind of got together in later years. They almost kind of took a vote on this. And I think they kind of, they agreed amongst themselves that Pickett probably made it as far as sort of, you know, some of the ground on the west side of the Emmitsburg Road. I always tell people kind of about where the Kadori Orchard has been replanted by the National Park Service today. If you look there, it's obviously a little bit safer than the east side of the Emmitsburg Road. There's a little bit of a rise of ground there where as long as, you know, you're not getting shot at, it's a lovely position from which to see the field. And I'm going to draw my line in the sand and say west side of the Emmitsburg Road, kind of opposite where the Kadori buildings are today, but not on the east side. And I would think that would be logical. And also the idea that he's not exposing himself to danger Yes, you could say at some point that is being less of a, a dynamic leader, oh, man. but hey, he's a division commander. It doesn't do any good him getting hurt or killed right. right now. Right. And you have to have leadership on a battlefield. And we've seen in this battle what happens when leadership begins to break down. Bad things happen. So I could see that, that he is an integral part of this attack. You want to be paying attention to what's going on, but you also have to protect yourself somewhat. Whereas... Trimble and Pettigrew are almost acting more like brigade commanders yeah, than they are division they commanders. Are. And yeah. I think you could actually take a shot at that and say, mm-hmm. maybe that's not the best thing for them to be doing mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. So I think it does go both ways. But I think certainly if you contrast it just on the surface of the leadership of Pickett compared to the leadership of Pettigrew and Trimble, you know, of course Pickett doesn't look as good. Right. And I could see that, you know, there's a lot of North Carolina veterans that are going to say, hey, look at what our guys did. Look where our leaders were. Look at where your leader was. He doesn't look as good, but he's getting all the credit for leading the attack. Yeah, that would piss a lot of guys off. That would piss me off. Yeah. So I think that's where we have to sift through all these layers and eventually you'll get to something. I think if we have to kind of come down on it, I like Jim's location of where he probably was. I think he's also moving around a bit, mm-hmm. which would make sense. Yep. Uh, so I think it's a combination of that. Yeah. And, and so you brought on the point, you know, nothing good is going to happen if he gets shot up. Because, for example, if we now fast forward to the end of the attack and his men are streaming back, disorganized, broken regiments, broken brigades, you kind of need somebody in charge now to kind of bring the boys back together. And this is going to become, going to lead to one of the most iconic moments at the Battle of Gettysburg. Lee meeting Pickett in the wake of the Pickett's charge debacle. Eric, how does that meeting go? The wording differs sometimes on accounts, but generally speaking, Robert E. Lee sees riding up a forlorn, broken George Pickett. General Pickett, look to your division. General Lee, I have no division. Or generally, my division is destroyed. There's even some accounts. Generally, I have no division. They're dead on the field. You know, a number of different accounts where this is coming from. But what we are seeing is the polar opposite of the George Pickett just a few hours Mm -hmm. ago. And 
it's the polar opposite of what Robert E. Lee needs at this exact moment. So certainly if you'd see a crack now, now by most accounts, you know, Lee is very understanding and empathetic and, you know, basically saying to Pickett, don't worry, it, you know, it is my fault. I set, you know, I sent your splendid division in there. But deep down, obviously, Pickett would have scored a lot more points if he had pulled himself together at this moment, you know, and, and, and got his guys together. We were talking about this, and I've mentioned in my writings and tours and stuff like that. Pickett's not the only guy doing that at this point. Again, Cadmus Wilcox, there's almost an identical meeting between General Lee and old Billy Fixin Cadmus Wilcox, where once again, Wilcox has tears streaming down his face, and him and Lee have a very similar conversation. So again, I wouldn't think Pickett's the only officer on the field who was clearly rattled at this point, but think of how things could have gone differently for the Lee Pickett relationship if Pickett had stepped up at this decisive moment and said, don't worry, General Lee, you know, I've got my men ready and we're going to meet them if they come. And it doesn't happen. And I should just make a side note, Cadmus Wilcox, North Carolina born (laughs) Cadmus Wilcox, the pride of Wayne County, North Carolina. I think, too, if we look at these two incidents, I think by all accounts, Lee is probably very sympathetic. But I, I think, like you said, in maybe his head, he's going, you know, General Pickett, get it together, right, buddy. Right. And also contrast Johnston Pettigrew's actions of reforming his division, getting them ready to potentially repulse a Union counterattack. Pickett's division is disorganized. And if you're Lee, you're looking at one part of this where Pettigrew's guys are still relatively organized, mm-hmm. what's left of them. Pickett is not. Also, Cadmus Wilcox is a dependable officer for Robert E. Lee. Lee, I think, can understand a momentary act of weakness, if you will, or kind of letting your emotions get to you, where once again, Lee is, it's all about being in control in the moment. Yeah. And when the bullets are flying and it's at the absolute worst, that's where duty and discipline kicks in. And if you cannot respond to that challenge... I think you lose a lot of value and With esteem Robert in Lee. Lee's eyes. I agree. I totally agree. And, you know, even to the point where it's Longstreet and staff who are now going to start riding out to kind of whip the batteries in shape while Pickett's guys are more or less just streaming over the rear. And, you know, and again, and I'm not diminishing the sacrifice of Pickett's division. I mean, ultimately, depending on what book you read. Reported casualties are going to be in the 40 to 50% neighborhood. So it's, it, it, it's a huge afternoon for them. But, you know, brigades, divisions in the Army of Northern Virginia, they've come back from stuff like this. And the image you have on the afternoon of July 3rd is Pickett and his men more or less just, you know, fleeing back across Seminary Ridge. And again, Robert E. Lee, that's not what he needs at this moment in time. Lee needs leaders. Leaders show up when the time's the worst. Any Anybody can be a leader when it's nice. That's easy. It's a lot when your back's against the wall, you're looking at possibly defeat. Because at this moment, Lee's still thinking that George Meade and his army is going to pour that right across that field. Right. That's what Lee is worried about. And even there's some accounts, you know, Lee's famous, it's all my fault, man. What Lee often follows that is, well, help me get yep. out of this. That's right. I need all my reform. good soldiers reform. reform. Yeah. You know, that's what Lee is worried about. Yep. Because if you were Robert E. Lee and you're now in George Meade's shoes, what would Robert E. Lee do? Mm-hmm. You are pouring across that field and you're going to win this thing once and for all. Oh, that could be some heat with the Meade people. You know, one of these days we're going to have to bite the bullet and do a Meade episode. But the point being, which I think we've repeatedly reinforced here now, not a good moment for Pickett. Probably not a good moment. Oh, iconic as it is, not a good moment in the so-called Lee Pickett relationship. 
So let's fast forward a little bit now. Lee and his army are beginning to retreat from Gettysburg. And to kind of tie all of what we've put together so far as we look at and assess the Lee Pickett relationship. In my opinion, there's no one real major issue. Right. But it's a series of minor issues. And I think sometimes in our own lives, sometimes the things that cause us the most problems are a multitude of smaller events that compound into something larger. For example, if we only mention sickles once, twice, three times, eh, at some point it becomes an onslaught. And, you know, not everybody likes that. Exactly. That sort of mentality. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's a pertinent example of what we're talking about. And I think this is somewhere where we can all kind of relate in our own lives about that. Sometimes it's not the big issue, but it's all these smaller issues that eventually lead to a big issue. And I think Lee is starting to see that. Let's go back and look at Pickett kind of dereliction of duty, if you will, going to see his girlfriend, Mm -hmm. his out of control nature on the battlefield, not being in command of the situation. You know, not to interrupt, but one, it just occurred to me, one that we didn't mention, accusations that during the march up north, maybe Pickett sort of turned the other way as his men were kind of ignoring Lee's orders to not, you know, pillage and plunder Pennsylvania. could be another example. Yeah. So we're seeing these minor issues, but they're now building up. Mm Mm-hmm. And as we get into the retreat, there's a number of interesting moments that I think are going to further add to this strain, the relationship between the two officers are going to have. Agree. And and Pickett probably didn't help his cause when he questioned Lee on July 8th about being assigned to guard Union prisoners on the retreat from Gettysburg. Now, again, you know, you can speculate. Why was Pickett chosen? The guy brought up the rear of the army on the way into Gettysburg. Protocol might say he should lead the army on the way out, but it doesn't seem to happen. Um, He does seem to get the unpopular assignment of guarding Union prisoners. And Pickett didn't like that. Some of his men did not like that. So his men shared Pickett's mortification. It's sort of being assigned to that. There's a couple of, if you look in the ORs, which again, we recommend everybody reads, uh, there's a couple of interesting communications, July 8th, July 9th, kind of going back and forth between Pickett and Lee. Now there's one on July 8th from Lee's headquarters, Lee himself to General Pickett, basically saying to Pickett, I received your letter of the 7th and hope the arrangement you made may secure the safety of the trains on the other side of the river. There's two interesting things in my mind in this letter. One, Lee says, I received your letter of the 7th. So Pickett is communicating directly to headquarters and not through Longstreet. Remind me to come back to that later. But also, too, in this letter, Lee goes into very detailed instructions on the arrangements that he wants Pickett to make. You know, many of us on battlefield tours are that always kind of shorthand things. And as a leader say, you know, Robert E. Lee is not micromanaging. Well, he may not be micromanaging during the battle, but on the retreat, he sure is. And there's a great example of the detail that he's he's giving Pickett in the handling of this. But on July 9th, There's another letter, Lee to Pickett. And again, Lee opens with to Pickett, your letter of the 8th has been received. So Pickett is written to Lee again. And in this one now, Lee goes into more of an explanation. Quote, it was with reluctance that I opposed on your gallant division the duty of conveying prisoners. I regretted to assign them to such service as well as to separate them from the army, though temporarily, with which they have been so long and efficiently associated. Though small in numbers, their worth is not 
not diminished. And he goes on along those sorts of lines. There were reasons that govern me and in my opinion are the best for the public service. I regret that it has occasioned you and your officers any disappointment. So clearly Pickett has complained. Clearly Lee is trying to kind of go over and smooth the ruffled feathers. But in the meantime, I trust you will lend all of your energies of you and your division to sending off our wounded prisoners, surplus articles, and etc., etc. No one grieves more than I do at the loss suffered by your noble division in the recent conflict. And it goes on to talk about his satisfaction and that they will reorganize. Okay, Eric, you might think the correspondence is done there, but guess what? It's not. It goes on because there's another one where now Lee writes to Pickett again and says, I regret that you did not send on the federal officers with the guard assigned to them, etc., etc. So now Lee is kind of criticizing Pickett a little bit for the way Pickett is handling his assignment. And at the bottom of this letter, which is again several paragraphs long, Lee says, it is not intended to separate you from your corps and you will correspond as usual with General Long's street in reference to your duties. So again, I think there's a little bit of, hey, stop writing me, go through General Longstreet, and that more or less puts the matter of the correspondence to an end. But I think there's a lot there to kind of unpack, as you might say. And I'm going to put my Robert E. Lee hat on right now. And if I've ordered you to do something, it is your duty to carry out that order. I mean, think about what Lee said, your duties. Carry it out. Do what I've asked you to do. Somebody has to guard these prisoners. Somebody has to get our wagons out of here. Somebody has to do this. During perhaps the most critical moment in the country's history. And if you're Robert E. Lee, you're given a fairly simple request. This is not asking you to move heaven and earth to do this. And at the same token, this little pushback on it as well. But if I'm Robert E. Lee and I'm looking at any division that I have in my army right now to do this, in, say, the second week in July, if you had to argue combat effectiveness as a division, I think you could really question the combat effect of George Pickett's division. It's already undersized coming in. They've suffered heavy losses in leadership at the brigade and regimental level. Yeah, that makes it better to maybe give them that assignment because if I have to fight things out, I'd rather have divisions that are maybe in a better position morale-wise and leadership-wise. So I think this is Lee making a, a choice on what is best for my army. And I've often said, in my opinion, Lee's finest moment as an army commander is the retreat. Is the retreat. I will place his generalship on the retreat above what he did at Chancellorsville, what he did at 2nd Manassas. It is magnificent what he did to get his army out of there. And that's a topic for another time. But if you're thinking with the challenges Lee is under, the potential destruction of his army, the potential destruction of the Confederate cause, and here is Pickett kind of writing to me, right. you don't want to guard prisoners? Right, exactly. You know, get that out of here. Right. You know, I don't have time for this. And I think this just adds further to these building issues that we're going to see. Totally agree with you. So I think maybe in Lee's eyes, we're building a little bit of an impression of a guy who I can't rely on when the chips are down. Maybe. We're speculating, but it's reasoned speculation. So as the Gettysburg campaign is ended, officers in Lee's army begin to sit down and assess their role in that campaign and their actions that they took and begin to file reports. It's in the filing of reports that the next flare-up... Woo! Between Robert E. Lee and George Pickett is going to take place centering around George Pickett's report on this battle and his actions on July 3rd. 
Yeah, that's right. And, you know, so people should remember, in general, Robert E. Lee did not personally read the reports. His staff did that. And, you know, they would kind of compile things and, and then get him to maybe review and, and sign and that sort of thing. But something in Pickett's original report obviously triggered a red flag because somebody brought it to the General Lee's attention directly. Now, in the uh, ORs, the correspondence section, there's a famous response from Lee to Pickett. It is undated. It's in the ORs somewhere between August 4th of 63 and January of 64. I'm thinking Lee maybe writes this on August 4th because that's kind of the date of everything in front of it. But as it goes, quote, General Pickett, you and your men have crowned yourselves with glory, but we have the enemy to fight and must carefully at this critical moment guard against dissensions which the reflections in your report would create. I will therefore suggest that you destroy both copy and original, substituting one confined to casualties merely. I hope all will yet be well. I am with respect, your obedient servant, R.E. Lee. And that's it, folks. That's all we have in the official records regarding George Pickett and the loss report. Eric, what do you think's going on there? What do you think happened? Well, generally speaking, Robert E. Lee, as a leader, likes to, the modern term, limit the drama that is taking place in his army. Lee is also very much aware of the place his army holds in Confederate society. It's becoming more and more the very embodiment of the Confederate cause. So Robert E. Lee, generally speaking, if you did not file a complete enough report, that's one way to to send that back. Or if what you file is so inflammatory that it's going to damage the morale, it's going to cause questions and, and cause issues even on the home front, Lee does not want that. I don't think this is an incomplete account. I think this is Pickett's opportunity to let loose of his pen. Mm -hmm. And I think Pickett is maybe not holding back. Think about at times being a very rash individual. You know, to make a bunker hill of this. He's an emotional guy. We've established that. So think about in our own lives when you're upset and you have to write an email back to somebody. <laughs> Think about that draft you may make in the moment or maybe sit and wait a day and then write another one. It's going to be two different drafts. I think Pickett is writing this out of emotion. And once again, this goes back to the idea of if you cannot control yourself enough in writing a report, how can I trust you to control yourself on a battlefield in, in my army? Yeah, all good points. And I think this is all, once again, all this is adding up. As we said, it's this accumulation of minor events that are all starting to multiply now. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's, it's, it's the airing of the grievances, so to speak. You know, he's probably not happy that he was left behind at Chambersburg. He's obviously blaming somebody for lack of support on July 3rd. He's not happy that he had to guard the prisoners on the way back. You know, we could speculate who is he blaming in his official report. We already said on the, I, I think from the What Was Lee Thinking episodes, I think Lee blames a lot of it on the artillery support. But if I'm in Pickett's report, I'm probably just blaming the guys on my flanks. The guys on my left gave way. The guys on my right gave way. And, you know, Lee sees that and says, uh-uh, we can't have any of that, especially in the wake of such a momentous campaign. So I think, you know, 
know, we could speculate on who Pickett is blaming, but from the perspective of the Lee-Pickett relationship, yeah, this is probably another nail in the coffin. And Lee is most likely aware of the issues, even among Virginia troops and North Carolina troops at this point. There's already letters already going back paper, and forth right, in newspapers. Right. They're already fighting this war. Right, right. And I think Lee says if Pickett's report comes out now, this is going to get only worse. I think Lee is trying to tamp down this moment because the last thing you want is troops from North Carolina, troops from Virginia say, you know what? Screw this. We're going home. Right. And they already, some of them already are. There's desertions in Lee's army in August and September of 63. So Lee's very worried about the morale of his army. This is a very touchy moment. So I think that's why Lee is kind of maybe Maybe a cool future episode would be farthest to the front at Gettysburg. That would be, that'd be cool, right? I like that idea. Now I will go ahead and tell the listeners. I'll be completely biased. Don't give it, don't give it away. I'll be totally biased on it. Stop right there. Okay. You know, so, okay. But I know we did get a bunch of listener questions about what happened to the report. Where is the report? Stuff like that. So I could swear to God, years ago, I owned a book. And I want to say, you know, I've, I've got Longstreet staff officers. Um, I've got Gorey's and Moxley Sorrell's accounts. I could swear to God, in one of those books, I read there was correspondence going back and forth. And somebody said Pickett's brother said the original report was destroyed in the fall of Richmond. And every time over the years, I've tried to go back and find that. I could never find that. But I, I could swear that's out there. So super famous. If anybody knows what reference I am referring to there, I am calling on the army of super fans here to help me out of this. Be like, I'll be like General Lee. I need you, all true soldiers, to help me out of this because I swear I read that and it's been driving me crazy for years. Yeah, and I when we do tours and people ask about Pickett's report, I often say, well, you know, there's a couple options that could have happened. Certainly, Pickett might have obeyed Lee's order and destroyed it, you know, gotten rid of that. Although, if I'm that angry, I'm keeping a copy. And given what we've been thinking about Pickett so far, yeah, I'm thinking he's shipping yeah, that off home. But and also we know that there's a number of valuable Confederate records that are destroyed in Richmond. So there is that. So Frankly, if it's out there, I have to think it would have come to light by now. This is not a document that's just hiding out, or it could be. I mean, who knows? Maybe it's sitting in a Pickett family chest somewhere that we don't know about. But yeah, I think the odds of it ever coming to light, pretty slim. I'm never going to say never, but we can probably get a sense of at least the tone of it. I don't think we can see what's in it, but we can get a a sense of the tone. Yeah. Now, after the Battle of Gettysburg, as the Army of Northern Virginia slowly begins the the process of reorganization, Pickett is sent away from the Army for a while. Again, some people will often say, you know, this is the favorite Lee tactic to send guys that he doesn't like away from the Army of Northern Virginia, and there's some truth in that. But Pickett will spend some time in North Carolina. And Eric, you might know a little bit something about this. I seem to recall about 10 years or so ago, you wrote your own book, Fight As Long As Possible, The Battle of Newport Barracks. And I remember reading and enjoying that book, which is still available wherever fine books are sold. But why don't you tell us a little bit about Pickett's time in North Carolina? And I'm guessing it's not going to go real well. Yeah, spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for George Pickett. But this is literally taking me back home. This is where I grew up in this part of eastern North Carolina. Now, after the repulses and disappointments of 1863, as Robert E. Lee is looking to 1864, he's really viewing this as probably going to be a very critical year in the war. Lee is looking for points 
along with Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president, to where the Confederates can maybe relieve some pressure. One of those areas that Lee begins to look at is eastern North Carolina, more specifically the Union Garrison at Newburn, North Carolina. Now, I do want to give a plug to one of my good friends, Hampton Newsom, who wrote a wonderful book, Fight for the Old North State. If you get a chance, it covers this campaign in a lot of detail. I'd highly recommend it. But the idea that Lee has as he's looking at Newburn is a chance for Confederates to regain a foothold in a critical region, also reduce the logistical ability of Union forces to campaign in that area, also limit some of the pressure that's going to be made on the Wilmington Weldon Railroad. Lee is going to write to Confederate President Jefferson Davis on January 2nd, 1864, the time is at hand when if an attempt can be made to capture the enemy's forces at Newburn, it should be done. I can now spare the troops for the purpose, which will not be the case as spring approaches. Lee is going to describe the garrison at Newburn as so long unmolested and experiences such a feeling of security that it is represented as careless. Lee is also going to state that a large amount of provisions and other supplies are said to be at Newburn, which are much wanted for this army. Besides, much that is reported in the country that will thus now be made accessible to us. Two days later, Jefferson Davis gives his reply to Robert E. Lee. Your suggestion is approved, but who can and will execute it? You can give it form which would ensure success, but without your personal attention, I fear such failure as elsewhere been suffered. It would be well to send the brigade, and if circumstances permit, you had better go down. Otherwise, I will go down myself, though it can only be for a very few days, Congress being in session. Now, this is an interesting back and forth because what Jefferson Davis is recommending is that Robert E. Lee leave the Army of Northern Virginia to oversee this operation in eastern North Carolina. Think about that dynamic right there. Damn, really? Not only that, Jefferson Davis himself says, well, if you can't go down, I am going to exert my power as commander in chief to oversee this operation. Can you imagine Abraham Lincoln leaving the White House and saying, you know what, I'm going to go oversee the operations of the Army of the James? Well, Lincoln probably would have liked doing that, but it never would have happened. So this is interesting things going on. I think this is a lesser campaign that doesn't really get the attention because it kind of falls between the fallout of Gettysburg and the start of the Overland campaign. Mm -hmm. And it's also not in Virginia. It's not in Tennessee or Georgia. So we kind of ignore it. But a lot of interesting things at play. So the question now between Lee and Davis is who is going to command this operation? Robert E. Lee has in his army a rising star, a brigadier general by the name of Robert Hoke. Hoke has developed a plan for the capture of Newburn. Lee likes this plan. Lee likes Hoke. Lee is going to advocate for Hoke to oversee this operation. Jefferson Davis essentially writes back and says, yeah, let's pump the brakes on that. Hoke is a brigadier general. I want somebody a little higher rank. Eventually back and forth, it eventually goes to George Pickett. Mm. Pickett's going to command around 13,000 men in this operation. Can I just ask a question here? So if Lee is holding any grudge or grievance against Pickett post-Gettysburg campaign, do we see any evidence to that here? I mean, geez, they just gave the guy kind of a promotion. Well, what we see, in my opinion, is there's some missing letters back and forth. We don't have the full correspondence. As always. And I think for me, Lee is advocating heavily for Hoke. Pickett ends up getting the job. Now, I think of any division commander of the Army of Northern Virginia, you're thinking of sending down there. 
Send Jubal early. Send Robert Rhodes. There's a lot of good division commanders you could send down there. But Pickett gets the job. Now, some have speculated this might be a chance for Pickett to rebuild his confidence. I mean, hey, maybe take him down to a little a lower level, right. if you will. Maybe an easier opponent. Let him build this confidence up. Might be a good thing moving forward. Like a territory, but a small territory kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, what we will see is that Pickett's assigned for this operation. But his essentially second in command is going to be Robert Hoke. Now, put yourself in Pickett's shoes. You're given, as you said, what might seem almost like a promotion. But now the guy that really comes up with the plan, the guy that Robert E. Lee has all of the support of and and the guy that Lee really wants in charge of this, he's going to be the guy right behind you. That's an interesting leadership dynamic, to say the least. Fast forwarding, as this plan begins to take place on February 1st, 1864, it's this wildly complex campaign. Confederate columns converging on Newburn from different locations. A Confederate naval detachment is going to come down the Noose River and capture a Union gunboat and turn it against Newburn. Also, at the same time, you have General James Martin and his Confederate force coming up from Wilmington to cut the railroad at Newport. There's a lot going on. Pickett freezes. Pickett <laughs> fails. There's some initial successes, but they're not followed up on. Pickett, as I said, he freezes. There's some accounts as this is going on, he just kind of twirls his his sash around, not knowing what's going on. The next day, February 2nd, Hoke and other commanders going, what do you want to do? Pickett does nothing. Yeah. Eventually, it is found that we cannot capture Newburn. We begin to remove our forces from this. So once again, here's Pickett with another failure. Now, caught up in this is one of the more interesting units in North Carolina Civil War history, the 2nd North Carolina Union Volunteers. One of the things people don't have to think about, if we say North Carolina, we think Southern Confederate state. Mm -hmm. We don't think there was unionism in North Carolina. And if they do say unionism, they think of the mountains of North Carolina. But there was strong pockets of unionism in Eastern North Carolina. Also, they've been under union occupation for almost two years now. A number of the men that made up the 2nd North Carolina Union Volunteers were from Eastern North Carolina. Some of them had previously served in Home Guard Confederate units that were later transferred into Confederate service. Now, these men were initially told, hey, if you serve in the Home Guard, Mm -hmm. it's different than being in Confederate service. Eventually, they get rolled into that. Many of these men soon deserted. They returned home, and some of them enlisted in the Union later. Some of these men are now captured at Newburn. Pickett? is going to feel they're traitors and that they deserved death. Mm-hmm. On February 5th, the first two Union soldiers were executed. When word of this reaches General John Peck, who commanded Union troops in that part of the state, he is going to write to George Pickett, General, I have the honor to include a list of 53 soldiers of the United States government who were supposed to have fallen into your hands on your late hasty retreat from before Newburn. They are loyal and true North Carolinians and duly enlisted in the 2nd North Carolina Infantry. I ask for them the same treatment in all respects as you will give to other prisoners of war. Mm -hmm. That's the union stance. We have Pickett's response. I have the honor to state in my reply that you have made a slight mistake in regards to the numbers, 325 having fallen into our hands in our late hasty retreat from before Newburn. Instead of the list of 53, which you have so kindly furnished me, and which will enable me to bring to justice many who have up to this time escaped their just deserts. 
I herewith return you the names of those who have been tried and convicted by courts martial for desertion from the Confederate service and taken with arms in hand, duly enlisted in the 2nd North Carolina Infantry, U.S. Army. They have been duly executed according to law and custom of war. Your letter and list will, of course, prevent any mercy being shown any of the remaining number. Should proper and just proof be brought of their having deserted the Confederate colors, many of these men pleading in extenuation that they have been forced into the ranks of the federal government. Extending to you my thanks for your opportune list. So that's a serious moment, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Ultimately, 22 were executed. Now, what's sad about many of these men, they were poor, illiterate farmers from Eastern North Carolina. They had no idea what's going on. They're just these pawns pawns caught up in this. We look at Pickett's response. I would argue that's an incredibly harsh reaction to this. But let's look at what Pickett has dealt with in the last year. You know, failure after failure after failure, disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And I think, unfortunately, these 22 men become a valve to try to release some of that pressure. I think also Pickett is maybe trying to show that he's taking a harder line. Yeah. We also begin to see in Lee's army in this period, some executions taking place in Lee's army. Mm-hmm. I think this is maybe Pickett trying to take that. Hey, if, if Lee is doing it, maybe it'll impress Lee a little bit. But I think there's also just a personal issue that that Pickett has. This is just these guys are in the wrong place, wrong time, and unfortunately on the wrong list. You know, I can't speak to a lot of this, but I think, you know, when I read of this episode and that sort of thing, it further strikes me as Pickett, who may not take his own responsibilities all that seriously, but he expects everybody else Mm -hmm. to. And, you know, from a leadership perspective, I always kind of look at Pickett as kind of one of these, you know, do as I say, not as I do type of guys. But you're right. He takes he takes a very hard, hard line here. And, you know, for those who always think of Gettysburg and Pickett, you know, Pickett in the movie Gettysburg, he's smiling, he's romantic and all of that stuff. You know, remember, there's a darker side to the actual history of a lot of this. And I think his really his insistence that he's going to execute these guys in North Carolina is a good example of that. His response plays almost like a movie villain. Yeah, right. You've given me this list. Thank you. Now I know more to kill. Appreciate it. It wouldn't be the first time that when someone has personal and professional disappointments, they lash out. And it's often they never lash out within. They lash out at others. And in this case, it's some of these men from the 2nd North Carolina Union Volunteers. This is going to have repercussions for Pickett after the war. Yeah, right. Immediately after the war, George Pickett actually flees Mm -hmm. to Canada to escape an investigation into the executions. He's going to return to the United States after a promise by General Ulysses S. Grant that he would not face prosecution, which actually Grant took a little bit of heat for this. There were some people wanting Pickett strung up for this. right. Fast forward to June 23rd, 1874, United States House Resolution 3086, and I quote, an act to remove the political disabilities of George E. Pickett of Virginia was passed by the United States Congress. Basically, he was granted a full pardon about a year before his death. Yeah. Pickett flees the country. He gets out of Dodge thinking, right. I'm going to be strung up as a war criminal. Could be a war criminal, right. And there was a lot of people wanting that. 
here's another failure for George Pickett. So George Pickett's going to return to Virginia. In the meantime, in the months after, Robert Hoke wins one of the last major Confederate victories of the war at Plymouth. So here's the guy at second in command, shows me up. Hoke was the man. Clearly Hoke, Hoke was the guy. Hoke was the man. I, I'm, I'm a big Hoke fan. You know, I think that's another, you know, here I leave and this guy does even better than I do. And then Pickett returns to the army. He's going to give competent service in the Petersburg campaign up to, of course, five forks. Five forks. Which, you know, for most of us and a lot of listener questions kind of hinged on that. Pickett's post-Gettysburg career is probably best remembered for the disastrous defeat at Five Forks in April of 1865. Now, you guys got to remember, you know, we're in the Petersburg campaign, but it's clearly the last gasps of the Army of Northern Virginia. But as many of us know, Pickett's lines are attacked. Phil Sheridan is involved in the attack. Gouverneur K. Warren is involved. But as Pickett's men and his lines are crumbling, where is George Pickett. He and a couple other Confederate officers are back in the rear enjoying, as the legend goes, a shad bake. How do we think that played with Robert E. Lee? Obviously not well. There's a couple of accounts that then come out of this that sort of suggest Pickett is going to be relieved from command either over his division or the Army of Northern Virginia. The record is very, very murky on that topic. I think Five Forks ultimately is the the straw that finally breaks the camel's back. Now, as you said, it's murky. Is he relieved from command of his division? Is he is he ordered to still remain with the army? There, there's some question there because there is the famous account as they are moving towards Appomattox. There is Pickett riding just sort of sullenly along mm-hmm. on his horse, and Lee says to one of his staff officers, essentially, "What is that man still doing with the army?" Yeah, we had several questions where people were kind of saying, did that happen? Was he relieved? And, you know, we could probably bundle all of those together. I mean, a lot of this comes from Walter Taylor. Mm -hmm. Walter Taylor writes that following Sailor's Creek on April 6th, he had issued orders for Lee relieving Pickett of command, along with some others. So it's not just Pickett, but relieving Pickett of command. Now, Pickett's division was still intact, although very much reduced in number. But that's it. Walter Taylor says it happened. No copies of those orders have ever been shown to exist. Some historians believe it happened. Other historians believe it didn't happen. What we do know is as late as April 11th, Pickett is still signing things major general commanding. And in his 1870 book, Pickett's Men, Pickett's staff officer, Walter Harrison, actually reprinted an order dated April 10th, where again, Taylor addressed Pickett as Major General Pickett, General Commanding. So you kind of got this evidence kind of indicating that maybe Taylor's memory was faulty, but Taylor said it did happen. And some people have kind of tried to bridge the gap here and say, well, Pickett wasn't relieved from the army. He was only relieved from command of his division. And maybe in the chaos surrounding the final days of the Army of Northern Virginia, that order does doesn't get to Pickett. You know, there's a whole bunch of different different spins on it. But what we do know is Pickett is still with the Army of Northern Virginia at Appomattox, and he's still there. And whether it occurs or not, if anything, this is speaking to issues there. And even if Lee doesn't say it, Lee very well could have thought it. And and maybe it's something he said as an aside 
that his staff heard later, maybe not as they're riding by. Mm-hmm. Lee was also known for the public persona of Lee is a lot different than sometimes the private oh, persona yeah. of Lee. Kind of like a withering, sarcastic sense of humor. Yes. The, 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 the thing we talked about earlier about taking Pickett's hair. This would kind of sound in mm-hmm. character for Lee. Yeah, I don't think it's out of character for Lee. And I think sometimes Lee, as I said, his public appearance is sometimes different than his private. Yeah. Lee had a horrible temper. People always don't think about that when we think of the marble man in control, but he does that behind the scenes. He doesn't do it out front. So this kind of now leads us to the end of the war. Pickett, of course, we know is going to flee the country. And we now move into the late 1860s, early 1870s as really both Robert E. Lee and George Pickett are nearing the end of their lives. Right. Neither one is in good health. There's a belief that Pickett especially has brooded on, you know, kind of the defeats and, you know, what you term failures and things like that. Some people think Pickett's a heavy drinker in those years. I don't really want to speculate on that other than to say some historians believe he is. And there is, you know, I believe he, his death is eventually related to, I think, abscesses of the liver, Right. I believe. Right. So, I mean, that could suggest Right. Heavy drinking. But of course, you can have liver issues without ever having a drink in your life. What I think the interesting takeaway for me is, is that a lot of when we look at this relationship, a lot of the really vitriol seems to come from Pickett to Lee, not so much from Lee to Pickett. Yeah, there's biting comments, sarcastic comments, but... You know, I think a lot of it is Pickett maybe holds the grudge. I think Lee has better things to worry about. Yeah. Right. And I think it is probably something I think Pickett broods on to his dying day. I mean, I think if I were going to summarize this, if you look at contemporary sources or semi-contemporary, most of this Lee versus Pickett stuff more or less seems to come from three or four people. John B. Jones, we didn't mention this one, but John B. Jones, a clerk in the Confederate War Department, had supposedly recorded in his diary in 1864 that it is, quote, it is possible that General Pickett may have on some occasion criticized Lee. That's it. Didn't know the cause, didn't know what else was going on, but it's semi-contemporary, 1864. Confederate officer Eppa Hunton wrote in 1904 when he was 82 years old, quote, General Pickett had lost favor entirely with General Lee, although I cannot tell exactly what the trouble was. John Mosby, 1911, when he's writing in that magazine, noted that Lee, quote, didn't like Pickett. And as we said before, though, Mosby also said he was only slightly acquainted with Pickett and didn't really know what that was all about. And then last but not least, you got Walter Taylor basically saying during the final days, Pickett is relieved from command. So, you know, I want to just point out too, from a source point of view, you kind of got these four things that are kind of really building what we know today as Lee versus Pickett. And you could poke holes in almost any one of those. Either these guys are not there directly or they're writing it many years later. But at the same time, you know, with some of the events and things that Eric and I have talked about today, I think the weight of evidence would at least kind of say that, you know, Lee has some some legitimate concerns about Pickett. And I'll summarize it like that. Absolutely. And what makes this even more challenging is Everybody who is describing this relationship between Lee and Pickett, not one of them is named Robert E. Lee or George Pickett. So we don't really have their side of it. Lee, of course, is going to die in 1870. Pickett dies five years later. So Mm -hmm. these are both men at the end of their lives by this point. And I could very well see a bitter Pickett. His health is failing. He's had maybe the greatest moment in his life. It's not going to get better than this. I could just see a sad, bitter man emerging. So I think there's probably pieces of this that are very true to what extent and how much. We'll never know that. 
but I think we can piece together enough to, right. I think, paint a portrait of Pickett at this point. Of course, Sally comes in. Pickett and Sally had gotten married after Gettysburg. Now, Lee did not attend that wedding, but he did send a beautiful fruitcake as a gift. And I always say that probably proves that Lee didn't like Pickett because he sent the guy a fruitcake. I mean, who likes fruitcakes? Anybody? I'm sure somebody does. Somebody but, did. Yeah. But, but anyways, but the point being that obviously then Sally becomes a very popular champion of of her beau ideal husband after his death in her books, in her writings. You know, again, the famous quote is attributed to her. Supposedly, they are on a tour of Canada and they are having dinner with dignitaries. And somebody says to General Pickett, General Pickett, do tell us what happened at Gettysburg. And with a twinkle in his eye, Sally tells us, General Pickett replied, well, I think the Yankees had something to do with it. Nothing in her writings that sort of indicates he was harboring a grudge against General Lee. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. Maybe she was smart enough to not include that in her books, because obviously that would not have sold well in the post-war South. But again, it's really only kind of a handful of accounts that we're kind of working with here to, to kind of put this story together. And I think about Sally's view of things. That had to be a very challenging relationship after the Civil War. Living with someone like George Pickett could not have been easy. Even if he is drinking more, that, you know, really makes things worse if even if he's not but just being a bitter sad person it's not easy i think for her there's also this letdown of he dies this sad bitter man well i can't resurrect him but i can resurrect his memory Mm -hmm. i can shape how pickett will be remembered a greater man than maybe he was or maybe i'm going to show the world the man that i saw that's what we get Libby Custer, Helen Longstreet. Again, this is not uncommon. This is, you know, this is what some of these wives do. I think all of that, and you know, she kind of makes a, a cottage industry about that. I know, again, we had a couple questions regarding her accounts and the uh, veracity of her letters. I... As a historian, I really don't put any stock in any of them. I'm not saying there's no truth in, you know, what she has published or what she has said he said or what she said he wrote to her, that sort of thing. But I think as historians, we're able to poke so many holes in what she has published or what she did write that I personally don't really refer to them at all as a historical source. I don't feel comfortable with enough of them at all to say this is accurate and this wasn't. I find it interesting sometimes that I will often find historians cherry picking her letters mm-hmm. to kind of use, you know, what they want to support their argument. But I hate to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but in this case, I kind of do. I would say if you are looking at them as a historical document, buyer beware. There's a lot of issues with things that he says, but there's no way he would have been there at that time. Yeah. The timing's off, all kinds of things. I would stress that if you're going to use her writings, and I use that term on purpose, her writings, even though these are supposedly his letters, I think there's a lot of question whether Pickett even wrote that. I would say if you're going to use them, have some backup evidence to corroborate it. Don't just use them on their own. And and we've, we've of course, sort of warned about the use of memoirs at times and have to understand, you know, take them with a grain of salt. With hers, I think it's probably one of the least yeah. useful 
and reliable writings we have from post-war. I agree. And I think the difference is, you know, when you look at somebody's memoirs, like let's use Chamberlain as an example, because somebody always says, oh, Chamberlain, you know, he's a self-promoter in his memoirs. Well, yeah, but but we know it's him writing. It's him writing his perspective of the events. And then you can kind of cross-reference the events with other things and kind of make up your own mind. Do you think Chamberlain or anybody else is the real deal. But when you look at hers, I mean, it sort of crosses the line into fictitious plagiarized letters because you just don't really have any good indication that any of these are even legitimate. And to me, that sort of crosses the line between a self-promoting memoir and fiction. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, why I can't. I wish I could. Maybe there's somebody out there more learned than I am that can kind of say which ones are legit. But, you know, I've been doing this for more than 20 years and I've gotten along just fine without really relying on her as a credible source. And I think to me, it's easy to say, you know, it's a fraud, it's plagiarism, it's terrible. To me, I think it just, it speaks to a sad situation with her as an individual. This is, I think, her attempt to create the reality she wants, the reality she needs. And that is where I kind of come down on it. It's the George Pickett she wished she had. And it still influences our view of him today. Oh, Look yeah. How he was portrayed by Stephen Lang. Like flowery. In Gettysburg. And, and, think and about nice. how... Yep. We view Pickett just in our own minds. It's a far cry from, I think, the reality of George Pickett, but he wouldn't be the first historical figure right, that's the right. case. Yeah, it's more Pickett's image than anything that she says he factually did that we can kind of back up. And again, we talked about the appointment to West Point, Lincoln supposedly visiting the Picketts, you know, during the during the fall of Richmond, yes, you yep. know, stuff like that. Yeah, I think Abraham Lincoln's probably the last person George Pickett wanted to see at that moment. Uh, you see the president, you might be leaving in cuffs. Other than Hoke, maybe. Maybe he wouldn't want to see Hoke either, I'm thinking. Yeah, it's very true. Um, Yeah. All right. Should we put a bow on it and kind of wrap this up? Yeah, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I hope we can give you kind of a a breakdown of this relationship between the two and some of the myths, some of our views on it. Once again, we kind of enjoy these episodes where we can look at the personalities of these individuals, more so, you know, what happens, but – so much of the decision-making in this battle is personality-driven mm-hmm. and past experience-driven. Right. And, you know, people might say it's an onslaught of two episodes of Sickles' murder coverage. We think it impacts decisions he makes here. I think it's very clear it does. Yeah. Things that happens to Pickett in the past, it determines how he responds to things. We are all creatures of what happens to us. And that's, to me, what makes history so fascinating. It's not what happens, but how it happens. And, and why it happens. do it. Yeah, and why. And why. And the decisions they make. And yeah, you know, I always find it interesting that people will talk endlessly about terrain. Terrain drives the battle. And I get it. It's a cliche, but it's true, but it does. But when you talk about the people, it's, again, the decision making, the, the interpersonal conflicts that also drive what happens. And frankly, to me, it's more interesting than standing it and staring at a hill and wondering how the terrain worked. I like talking about the people. So hopefully, you know, others are going to enjoy this kind of thing, too. If I could, maybe the last word will come from Stephen Lang in the movie Gettysburg, where regardless of whatever the Lee Pickett relationship was, was it not Stephen Lang who challenged us to find the man who thinks Robert E. Lee was descended from a ape? I can't say it any better myself. How, right. We should just stop right now. It's the best way to close. There we go. So as we put a bow on this episode, we have a number of folks who want to thank. First, Jim, we want to thank our sponsor. And Jim, once again, tell the listeners uh, yeah. who that is this evening. Yeah. So again, we want to thank the Gettysburg Foundation's In the Footsteps of Leaders Leadership Program. If you want to schedule your own leadership program for your organization here on the battlefield at Gettysburg, you can email them at leadership 
at gettysburgfoundation.org or call 717-339-2154. And I think we also want to thank Tammy Myers and the Gettysburg Heritage Center for opening up their studio to us today. Absolutely. It was a tremendous help for us not to get too inside baseball, but the, the virus has impacted all of our lives. It's also impacted places where we can record and a number of things. So the best advice I can say for anybody, help each other out. Mm, it's the best we thing we can do. We'll get through this together. And we certainly see that here in Gettysburg with some of our friends and some of our partners we have. We're very fortunate for that. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Practice social distancing. Be optimistic. We'll get through it. Mm-hmm. So with that said, our next episode is going to be part two of our program we did on the Union 11th Corps with Stuart Dempsey. It's going to primarily focus on the 11th Corps at Gettysburg itself in the battle. In part one, you'll remember mm-hmm. it was a lot of background on them leading up to it. Part two is going to be the battle itself and kind of the fallout of this much maligned unit. So I think stay tuned for that. I think you'll really enjoy that. It was a chock full of great 11th Corps information. It sure was. And again, we will be at the historic historic George Spangler farm for that one. I thought this was a good episode. Want to thank everybody for sticking with us through the hard times. And uh, personally, I look forward to uh, talking to everybody again soon. And once again, thank you to our super fans for listening. This is the Battle of Gettysburg podcast.